Hey guys, this is Emma Graney, the Press Gallery host. Before we get started today, I do want to encourage you to subscribe. Just search for Edmonton Journal wherever you podcast. Also, if you feel like throwing a rating on iTunes, feel free to do so. Even if you think we're terrible. If that's the case, <laughs> you'll make me sad, but that's cool. Um, also, reach out if you have any questions or concerns. You can find me at egraney at postmedia.com. Shoot me an email there. Or I'm very easy to find on Twitter. Emma L. Graney. Thanks and enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. This is the Australia Day edition because it's Friday, January 26, 2018. Happy Australia Day. Thank you so much. Australia, Australia, Australia. Yeah. Wallabies. <laughs> Everyone's just going to say random Australian things that they know about. That's fantastic. Um, I, I have to say, I thought of you because I was reading the the amazing Financial Post story this week about the woman who goes undercover to bust the all the zillionaires having their fancy dinner and 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 ogling the waitresses. And uh, she quotes somebody as saying, "You know, it's a marmite event. Either people either people <laughs> really like it or they really hate it." And I thought, <laughs> so but this will be like a Vegemite podcast. Either people will really love it or exactly. Really hate it. And Australia Day isn't at all relevant to the content uh, of today's podcast, but anyway. Anyway, I'm your host, Emma Graney, um, <laughs> one of two Australian Canadians in the newsroom. Um, with me today, Claire Clancy. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the ride this morning. The yeah. roads are terrible. They are absolutely atrocious. Paula Simons. I'm very disappointed to know that you did not ride your bicycle today because <laughs> the uh, the Oliver Bond was, I mean, I have to say the bike lanes uh, were swept clean of snow this morning. Yeah, the bike lanes looked amazing. I had to bring in uh, freshly baked Australian treats. All right, so for there's, you all. There, so, and you had to pick, bring in Claire. So yeah. Claire didn't want to sit on my handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> and here, having made her way across the river looking somewhat haggard, is Sarah O'Donnell. She doesn't look haggard. She looks beautiful. Just don't watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I she mean, looks, she looks, for me. <laughs> she, she, looks, she looks beautiful as always. It's just that she looks like somebody who just made it up that big hill. Who literally just walked in the newsroom. So today we're going to be talking about the resignation of Liberal Cabinet Minister Ken Hare. That evolved from his time at the Alberta Legislature. We're also going to talk about the pro-life UCP ties and an internship. And finally, we're going to talk about recommendations um, made by the Child Welfare Panel. Sorry, draft recommendations made by the Child Welfare Panel and uh, a meeting in Ottawa that is around a similar topic. I love the way you made draft two syllables. Draft. <laughs> I'm a very fancy lady. <laughs> um, let's start off with Kent Hare because, of course, this was huge news yesterday. Oh, that was only yesterday. It feels like so long ago and also... Like, it's still happening in some ways. I was in the middle of this, but uh, Paula, do you want to take us through what happened? Were you paying attention I, Oh, I was paying attention. And it, it actually started It started the night before, actually. Um, it, it was, I think, Tuesday evening, was it not? that um, uh, Wednesday night was the PC Ontario meltdown. Right. Patrick Brown. Yeah, yeah so, you know, so it would have been, I guess, Wednesday, Wednesday evening, mm. in the midst of that. Which had actually been preceded by something in Nova Scotia, right. where the conservative leader there was also facing allegations. 
yeah, it's, and it's then been, that was overcome by Ontario, and then Ontario's larger biggest, conversation sorry. started. Yeah. Um, so Kristen Rollworth, um, uh, who's on Twitter here in Edmonton, at the time she was a staffer with the Progressive Conservatives, um, one of the you know the, sort of the junior staffers who looks after MLAs, gets them to their you know like a they're like a nanny for MLAs. <laughs> um, so she would have been twenty five at the time. And she went on Twitter, and in response to something that Warren Kinsella had said about why is there no Me Too movement in Canada, she said, well, here's my Me Too movement mo- moment. When I was a, a young staffer, I was warned not to ride in elevators with Kent Hare, who was at the time a rookie uh, liberal MLA. And she said, you know, she was warned by people that he was inappropriate with young women in elevators, and that uh, the first time she did ride in an elevator with him, he called her yummy. Now... As allegations of sexual wrongdoing go, that's not the worst one we've heard Mm. in the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, And she offered no substantiation or evidence of this beyond saying it was something that had happened to other women who were unnamed. And then it was well known among legislative circles that you didn't didn't hang out alone with Kent Hare. And what really took me aback is that in all of these other cases... We have had reporters, we have had a second source, we've had, you know, we've had somebody who bore witness, we've had somebody who said, oh, she told me about it at the time, or here, here, here are the text records. In this case, it was one young woman saying, almost casually on Twitter, yeah, this is something that happened to me, and I'm not sure she expected the consequence of it, which was that within hours... Uh, Kent Hare had been compelled to resign as a liberal cabinet minister. I was on the phone with her when that happened. Uh, and it was a really surreal moment because as a journalist, kind of like, oh, what did you think of Trudeau's reaction? And she was halfway through answering that question when he resigned. And, and she went, he, he's just resigned. And it was this really kind of weird moment. I said, well, isn't that kind of what you wanted? And she said, no, I didn't want that. that I didn't expect it. I didn't want it. Because now... She's worried that the larger conversation of safety of young female staffers is not going to be a conversation that's going to be had. And that's really why she came forward to start with. Sarah, weren't you working in the ledge in like, in Kent Hare's time? I, I certainly was at the legislature uh, as uh, went at a time when he was MLA, absolutely. Um, these were not comments that had come to me as a reporter. So I was, I was very interested to hear about them. There was a couple things that struck me about the, the, the story involving Kent Hare. One, and one that I appreciated, was that she put her name to what she said. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't and, anonymous. And that made it, that made us something that allowed us to call her, that allowed you to call her as mm-hmm. a reporter and speak to her further. A lot of uh, the, the issues that have been raised in, in, as part of the Me Too for, you know, a number of reasons, of course, many of them very good reasons, uh, people have, have been anonymous. But I, I appreciated that she came forward and she uh, put, you know, she said this with her name. I also thought that it was important that it raises the issue of verbal harassment and and because that's you know that's what she's saying. She, he was making inappropriate comments, and I think it's it's important to talk about. And one thing I wonder is, you know, what kind of training or discussion or uh, you know protocols, not protocols, but you know guidelines and and guidance is given to people who work in government and MLAs. You would hope that there would be common sense. 
Well, yeah, right? you shouldn't like, have to yeah, tell a guy you, not to do it. You shouldn't have to do it. But it does make me wonder, what does this say about the kind of reminders, training, all those kinds of things that we do need to have in government and for elected officials to remind that, to talk to them about, you know, the way you talk to women and people in around you matters. So that's something I'm wondering out of all of this. And I think it's so interesting to hear from, I've heard from multiple journalists who were at the ledge at the time who said kind of, you know, I hadn't heard reports of that. No, I mean, I, I, was, I, working think, at, I was working at the legislature. I was filling in for Graham yeah, during part of that time. And I, think, I certainly never heard this about Kent Hare. And it raises that issue of when something is so well known in a circle and yet nothing is done or women don't feel at least safe enough to report the the possibility of this happening that's i mean that's just so depressing and for Kristen, that was the whole point and that's why she came forward because she wants that to change she wants that culture of secrecy and fear more than anything because mla's are powerful people kent hare wasn't her boss let us not forget that but she still didn't feel and the culture around that was so internal and you know hey just kind of whispered to stay away from him and people experienced it um she, a lot of people reached out to her after she came forward and went, yeah, I totally remember that. Do you remember that time he did this or, you know, allegedly yes, did this? There, there are two, two issues that I wrestle with here. I guess as a journalist, I'm trained to listen sympathetically when someone comes forward. But my de facto setting is not to believe everything I am told. You'd be a terrible journalist if you did that, <laughs> wouldn't you? So I, I am worried about there is something in the Me Too culture where we're told, I mean, you know, we're being, we're being disciplined on Twitter. You're not allowed to question. You know, someone says something, you have to say, I believe you, that it's the call and response. So someone says this allegation and, and the correct response, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you. This happened to me. And, and, and the response is, I believe you. I'm a journalist. It's not my job to believe everything I am told. It is my job to listen with sympathy and with empathy and, you know, some, you know, initially at least without judgment, but, but to weigh evidences. And so I don't know what happens in a culture where we are told it is impossible to doubt the honesty and integrity and accuracy of recollection of any woman who says a thing happened to her. But, but the other thing, because, I mean, Given what's happened in in the next 24 hours, I mean, Kent Hare has not denied this. I mean, Kent Hare wrote a letter of resignation, and which is, was kind of weirdly wishy-washy. Wasn't it, though? It, it was he, very strange. He, he doesn't say he did it, but he certainly doesn't deny it. Um, uh, so, you know, that certainly leads credence to the allegation. But, but I think that Kristen's uh, other point is the important one. This is not about individual men. By all means, let us hold individuals accountable for what they've actually done. But I worry in a way that by by singling out individuals and calling out individuals, we don't call out the larger question, which is that you have a culture in legislatures and in the House of Commons where you have lots of young staffers, lots of junior staffers who are very vulnerable, who are frankly competing for opportunity. Uh, and it happens in the NDP, in the Conservatives, in the Liberals. It's every party. It's every ideology. You have that power imbalance where you have senior people, most of them men, giving out the jobs, giving out the preferments. Those are the people who can boost your career. 
And then you have lots of young people, lots of them young women, who are competing for a very finite number of opportunities for advancement. And in a situation like that, you are always going to have a power imbalance where where those young women are going to be vulnerable because they can be exploited because they know that their career depends on pleasing those older men in power, whether those men are new Democrats, conservatives, or liberals. I agree with Paul. Like, I think questioning is just part of your job as a journalist, obviously. I also want to point out, though, that um, often accusations are brought to journalists and your hands are tied if people aren't willing to go on the record or yep. if... Put their name to it. Right. And mm-hmm. I think I just want to point out that as much as like there are a lot of discussions going on about accusations and people are saying, you know, like um, that I think there's there are some people who are looking at it almost like a witch hunt. Like you can say an accusation and destroy someone's career. But I really believe that... Um, if people knew the number of accusations that are brought to journalists, like that's why Gian Gameshi took so long to break, was those those rumors and accusations were going on for years before it was actually, yeah. you know, reported on. So I, I even just, heard them in Saskatchewan, for God's sake. Right. And I, but I also <laughs> wanted to add, um, James Wood had a great story yesterday about um, accusations against Darshan Kane, uh, Kane as well. Um, yeah. And um, I just wanted to point out that's a really interesting story to read because it talks about the commitment from the Alberta liberals to um, actually conduct an internal investigation after after accusations were brought forward and then the question is what happened to that investigation so I think when due diligence isn't isn't necessarily being done or the process isn't being followed when accusations do come forward then that raises a whole other issue I want to uh, switch gears Sarah has to leave us to do an internship interview <laughs> Lucky Sarah it's a, busy, it's a busy day so and I want to switch gears to um, the child intervention panel uh, work that they've come up with some final recommendations. Clancy, you were covering this, uh, but Sarah, you were you worked a lot on these issues down at the ledge. Uh, what do you these recommendations that have put forward? What do you think about them? Do you think this is going to actually? Is there anything different in there? <sighs> Sigh. <laughs> this is Sarah measuring her words carefully. I, yeah, I I, I I do feel like I need to. So I think the intentions are all good, of course. I don't know that the draft recommendations that have come forward will do a single thing to solve the problems that we have raised in our years of reporting on a number of cases, including and most recently the case of Serenity. I don't see a single thing in there that will uh, prevent what has happened to Serenity. So again, all important things, talking about culturally sensitive care, uh, dealing with some of the issues that Danielle Larravee has is going to Ottawa to talk. Is it Ottawa going going yeah. to talk with yeah. uh, her counterparts from around the yeah, country they're, they're in about Ottawa the right now. over-representation of Indigenous children in care. So all of those things, very, very important, and those are discussions that need to happen. But going back to the reason that this panel was struck, the case of Serenity, does it do a single thing to prevent that? Mm, I'm not feeling that right now, and I will have to be convinced, and, and I think... Through our, I will have to do more reporting. Um, I would like to hear more from MLAs, and I know this is going to be discussion about how that solves the problem. Does it fix the the backlog in medical examinations? Does nope. it do anything to make sure that the homes of children are safe for people? Does it do anything nope. to make sure that the rec- when people are raising flags about the situation that a child is in, that that information is being passed on and listened to appropriately? Nope. 
So Polar has been less measured. Paula, than as as in you know, in her opinion column role, Ken <laughs> is going to go there. I have raised all these questions because yeah, those are those are my questions. And I, when I saw them, I thought, oh dear, we're we're this isn't what I believed. I thought the intent of the panel was from a reporter's perspective going into it. That's not what I thought on the ground. That that's what they were going to well, do. I have to tell you. Um, What's fascinating, Claire Clancy, the, the, when, 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 we, when we say documents obtained by the Edmonton Journal, we mean in this instance documents obtained by Claire Clancy, uh, which, she, <laughs> which she shared with me yesterday. In addition to the draft recommendations, Claire shared with me the, the, like this, I don't think we're supposed to see this. These are the secret, the notes that members of the panel sent to one another about the recommendations and, what the, and whether they approved or disapproved of the wording of them. And there's someone on that panel. There is someone who is very unhappy. And their, their notes all the way through say, so we're calling for a review. Wasn't this supposed to be a re- the review? Yes. Why, in that case, you know, yes, I can definitively guess this was supposed to be the review. You know, because so there's somebody, and I'm, I'm, we're recording this Friday morning. By the time you read my column Saturday morning, I may know who it was because I'm spinning. Paul is making some calls. There's someone on that panel who's gone through <laughs> and annotated, annotated and said, this was a waste of time. The public asked us to do this review, and all we're doing, you know, is punting this down the field. And I think it's the same person who says most of these recommendations are probably harmless, but how do they, you know, how do they address the issue? I mean, somebody else has left a note saying, you know, we need to make sure there's a protocol for burial so that we have sensitive burial of indigenous children who die in care. And I thought, well, yes. That that would be good. It would also be good if there was something in here that helped to prevent indigenous children from dying in care. You know, the idea that we're gonna that we're gonna fuss over the burial rights, which is very important, very important to respect cultural integrity. Yeah, it's, 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 all, it's all <laughs> issues, but it misses it misses the the it misses the point, and it it seems to completely be so far removed from the original intention and the issues that we raised in our reporting on Serenity. And yeah. I think Sarah, was, for the record, is shaking her head, yeah. looking very disappointed. Not angry, disappointed. And I it's think worse. what's really important to point out as well is that there have been so many recommendations made over the years about inter- yeah. child intervention. Well, and yeah. I think that's why as a reader, sometimes it might look, um, you know, like there are some really interesting uh, con- like contextual recommendations brought up that are of course really important. But I think the question all of us have are kind of what makes these different from previous recommendations, like w- what I thought we were all kind of assuming would be included would be things like deadlines, timelines, in terms of implementing some of these things. And to be fair, there's going to be a work action plan uh, brought into place by June 30th. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, That's what what one of the recommendations is, the last one, actually. Um, So we'll see what happens. But I think we were, because the mandate of the panel was to end now um, and to have their work done now, I think we well, were kind to of get their work done six months ago. Right. Anyway. <laughs> they were delayed. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, I think we were kind of thinking we'd have more of a concrete no, plan. I mean, but, you know, th- this this just it's heartbreaking. You know, Sarah and I took part as observers in a similar thing that happened after Karen Cleese led our fatal care project. And there was outrage, and Alison Redford and Manmeet Buller, who were the premier and the minister of the day, had this really good series of roundtable, public roundtables at Lister Hall with really good discussion. And really good recommendations came out of that, except that they weren't acted upon. And so then 
there's only so much political theater. The Edmonton Opera is doing their production of HMS Pinafore in a couple of weeks, and I've seen a lot of productions of HMS Pinafore. So when I got my season's tickets, I said, please don't give me any HMS Pinafore tickets. I am now done watching theater about child welfare. Fix the problem. Stop showboating. Stop having these public things where people cry and they give their testimonies. It doesn't change anything. Here's some recommendations. Why not top up funding on reserve so that reserve welfare workers get the same kind of funding as workers off reserve? How about screening kinship care providers to make sure that they meet the same standards as foster care parents? How about providing more training and screening for foster parents and better better funding for them? How, you know, how about making sure that you have communication protocols so that if one social worker is concerned and then gets transferred, the next social worker knows that there's a problem? I mean, th- this is not actually rocket science. And, you know, know what? And to be fair, I mean, these are things that government can do without large panels. Yep. So we'll keep asking the questions and we will push them on issues that they we don't feel that have been addressed in the child welfare uh, panel that's happened. And uh, they can take action. So just because they aren't recommended in these draft recommendations doesn't mean government is powerless. And certainly it will be within their power to make changes within the next year, year and a half of their mandate that could make things better for Alberta children in the system. And on that note, (laughs) I will uh, take my leave. Okay, and finally, now that Sarah has left us, one more topic to go. The UCP internship and its interesting links to pro-life group. Which is not at all like the internship interview that Sarah's about to do. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, no. Probably not, no. So this was an interesting thing because... It kind of came up earlier this this week. Uh, I got an email from somebody saying, hey, I just got this email from this pro-life group and their email says, we have five internships, uh, three of which are at the UCP in Alberta. So you should all apply and learn how to push pro-life legislation through the Alberta legislature. So I called the UCP and said, Hey, this is kind of weird because they're saying we have it, which makes it seem as though they're funding the internships, right? Like we have something. It seems like they're funding it. So the UCP said, no, we're running it and uh, we can't stop a third party group from emailing out to their members about our internships. Totally fair comment. Absolutely fair. You can't stop someone doing that. Well, you can. You can, in fact, ask them politely not to do that. Sure, but you can't stop them. I mean, you know. There's that whole free speech issue, that nasty free speech issue getting in the way there. But what was most interesting about this is not so much the UCP's response to me, which was completely reasonable and fair, I thought. It was the UCP board's response. So we had Edamar and Sonia Khan on Twitter saying, this is made up. It's the NDP. It's the NDP anger machine making up an email that is fake and it's not even real. And, it, and it's funny because like, when you look at the original the original document which you provided for readers mm-hmm. it, it it calls it the united conservative party of canada it sure does and so people said well that must be fake because um, it's the wrong name yes on your son said if you're going if you're going to make stuff up at Emma. least get our party name right at, that wasn't it wasn't actually uh directed at me but um if you're going to get our party name make stuff up get our party name right and just to clarify it was not made up 
<laughs> well, it wasn't. But this, this, this thing, and people went on and on and on. Oh, this is fake. This is fake news. This is the media making things up. And Emma kept saying, well, no, see, I actually called all yeah, the I people did. involved. If you read the story, you'll see that they confirmed that this is all real. I, I, I did a nifty thing called journalism in which I called <laughs> the group that sent out the email. And they said, yeah, we sent that out. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, pro-life is a pushing for pro-life legislation. That's not a secret. And props to them. Like Scott Hayward from um, uh, It Starts Now, I think is the group's name. He was completely upfront about it. He was actually very friendly, very helpful, and very reasonable to talk to on the phone. And props to him. If you're if you're in a pro-life group and you're pushing for pro-life policy, then, you know, go nuts. Well, that's, I mean, it, right? that's absolutely their, their privilege and their yeah. prerogative. But it creates two different problems for the UCP. Yes. One is, of course, that abortion is a third rail issue. And that Jason Kenney, who is a devout Roman Catholic and, a, and a, had been a pro-life advocate in his youth, is on record saying that they're not going to touch the abortion issue because... No politician who's canny, and Jason Kenney certainly is, whatever his personal views about abortion, he knows that this is not a winning issue for him. So, I mean, this is why I say that the UCP could indeed have asked this pro-life group not to do this, because um, if, let's say, for example, you stealthily wanted to to reduce reproductive rights for Alberta women, the last thing you'd want to do is scream about it from the rooftops. <laughs> so even if Jason Kenney had a secret agenda... He'd want it to be secret. Um, <laughs> so this is this is very bad news for the UCP in the sense that it absolutely tars them with the reputation of of being you know opposed to reproductive rights for women, uh, and that's not great if you're trying to present your party as a moderate centrist party. But the other problem is that this is this is the second time in a couple of weeks that Sonia Kant, who's their communications director is that her title she is the communications chair of the uh ucp board she's looked like an idiot on social media that's Ooh, harsh. That, well it's it, harsh and also true um if you're going to if you're going to accuse people of making up fake news you sound like donald trump and if you accuse them of making up fake news without checking to make sure first oh if i read the story i would know they didn't make it up then you are looking like an idiot um, and that's got nothing to do with ideology. That's got to do with, with media protocol. And I, I don't understand the UCP's media strategy. I mean, when they when Jason Kenney came to power, they got rid of actually an extremely competent media staff in the UCP caucus. Well, it's important to point out here, though, this isn't caucus staff. Like, this is, no, this is this a volunteer is, is, board and at party level. It's not caucus. It's yes, not caucus employees. True. So, um, the, like, Sonia Khan uh, and Matt, the, the, they're volunteers who can go and do as they please. And, and that's how they kind of see it. Whereas the caucus staff aren't able to tell people, you can't tweet that because they're like, well, I'm a volunteer. I can do as I want. Well, you know? so this comes back to the whole free speech issue again. Again, <laughs> they have a perfect right to do this. And Jason Kenney, as leader, has a, per- a perfect prerogative to say, guys, not helpful. Now, I mean, you can, you can, you can look at this two ways. I mean, maybe Jason Kenney is going to take them out for coffee this weekend and say, guys, not helpful. Or maybe he's actually quite happy to have them out there um, thrumming to the base, you know, uh, you know, a marching parade of dog whistles. And then it gives him plausible deniability. So he can say, well, that wasn't me and that wasn't my professional staff. Those are our earnest volunteers. And they got a little carried away. But, you know, that's still signaling to the base. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what goes on in Jason Kenney's head. Um, but... Uh, I, if you're trying to appeal to more than your base, then this is not the strategy I would advise if I were advising. Clancy? 
Um, I don't like, I don't know. I thought it was, I loved your story. I thought it was a really interesting story. I think it's more interesting how kind of staffers reacted to this link that was made, but was fairly made. It kind of raises for me a really interesting point that when you have party volunteers, and this isn't just the UCP, like the Alberta party or the NDP or the Liberal party, I mean... Who's policing what they say on Twitter? They don't have training. They don't, they're not professionals. They're volunteers who are getting up and kind of giving it their all, as it were. Before social media, this wasn't a thing. You know, people from couldn't just say, oh, I'm the uh, communications director of this particular party and blah, blah, blah. It didn't well, matter. They, I mean, they did it, but it just didn't have as large of a platform. I mean, they could still make asses of themselves at cocktail parties. Um, <laughs> and haven't we all, though? Well, <laughs> Paul is like, no. No, never. I don't drink I in don't public. In, I don't drink in public or in private. <laughs> well, every now and again, you know, at Christmas, a half a glass of wine, but only if I'm not driving. And then you giggle, and then you just have to go to bed. Yep. So that, that, that's it. That's 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 the art of of Paula Simon's cheap drunk. <laughs> On that note, I do want to move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend stuff that we have listened to or heard or seen lately that we think you might also enjoy. I want to give you Sarah O'Donnell's recommendation because she she did uh, whisper it to me as she was running out the door to interview the intern. Uh, she would like to recommend the Dirty John podcast. Clancy, are you listening to that? You're a podcast yes. nerd. And I, it's six, enthusiast, sorry. It's, I am a podcast enthusiast, and it's an excellent true crime series by the LA Times. They also have um, an interactive um, like multimedia articles that go along with each episode. It's really fantastically done, but basically what it does is um, follows a relationship between a man and a woman that goes very um, hostile, and then it's... I, I'll leave it at that, but it's an extremely interesting true crime uh, story and uh, great interviews with the families and nice. just really fantastic. Well, what's your own recommendation? I should probably ask you that rather than just giving us the lowdown on Sarah's. <laughs> my own recommendation is I this week one of my personal heroes unfortunately died, um, Ursula Le Guin, who's an amazing um, writer and uh, I want to send a couple of things just that have been written about her. I think the New York Times did a really great tribute to her and also there's an interview from 2015 that I'm going to send um, that's just like her talking about her process as a writer. She changed the way that people think and write about gender and has been um, one of the kind of best straddling the line between science fiction and fantasy but writers for the last you know several decades. So Paula? I'm going to recommend a really remarkable piece from the Texas Observer. It's called Big Trouble in Little Cambodia. Oh. And it's about a community outside of Houston, Texas, that was settled by people who are primarily Cambodian refugees. I mean, when they arrived, they're not refugees so much anymore. Uh, and they were growing water spinach in the in the wetlands there. And their community got completely wiped out by Hurricane Harvey. And because they're about 40 minutes outside of Houston, nobody from FEMA showed up. And instead, a bunch of neo-Confederates and white supremacists arrived and said, we love you people because you're living off the grid and you're true, you know, you're true libertarians and we're going to help you rebuild your community and we're going to come with our guns and make sure FEMA doesn't come in here. And what? it's it's a movie. It is this remarkable because because at first the Cambodians were very excited that, uh, you know, that these burly guys had shown up and were going to help, you know, move stuff around and we're going to help them. And then they realized, oh, um, maybe these people do not have our best interests at heart. And it's just a remarkable story about 
how the Cambodians and the Neo-Confederates, there were these weird friendships formed. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. Sounds I, like quite the right. Yeah. I, somebody should be buying the screen rights to this right now. It's by Michael Hardy in the Texas Observer. And Emma will have the link. I will put that up on the website. I'm going to recommend a couple of pieces. It is, of course, Australia Day, which is Australia's version of Canada Day. Um, but Austra- With more shrimp. <laughs> we call them prawns. Um, but in Australia, there is quite the debate happening right now to change the date of Australia Day because what Australia Day marks is the day that uh, Captain James Cook rocked up um, you know, planted a flag and claimed the land in the name of Mother England, declaring it terra nullius, which means there's no one there. Problem is, of course, there were a lot of people there and had been there for thousands of years. Um, so there is a large debate right now about changing the date of Australia Day. So I'm going to put up some analysis pieces, um, one of which is a... Um, an opinion piece by Stan Grant, who's a noted Indigenous broadcaster in Australia. Um, he wrote a piece, Australia Day is a fight with myself that I can't possibly win. Uh, there are also a lot of um, protests and people have come to calling it Invasion Day. So it's an interesting, different perspective to read that, particularly, I suppose, for Canadians who may not know a whole bunch about our... Um, terrible history with the Indigenous people of Australia. Sean Butts, our videographer, who's going to put some of this online at Edmonton Journal, he wants to recommend something. Sean, welcome. Thank you. I I noticed you left me to last, so I'm easy to cut off. (laughs) No! That's just the order we go, man. Gotcha. Okay, so I have a podcast that that I've been listening to for the last uh, week or so. I think it's been in the news quite a bit. Uh, It came to me via the CBC. And there was one thing, um, as I started listening to, that was the real hook for me that got me really hooked on it. The podcast is called Up and Vanish, and, and it's hosted by a man named Payne Lindsay, who is a filmmaker out of Atlanta. And he was looking for a documentary to make on a cold case. Uh, and he didn't have to look too far. He found one um, in a small town called Oscilla, Georgia, that um, a woman went missing in 2005. And um, as he started poking around, the the main investigator that he had talked to, that the family had hired, uh, told him one thing, and this is the hook that got me really sunk into this podcast, is he said, if you go to Oscilla, don't go alone. It's a weird place. So Payne Lindsay just starts looking into it. He even calls his grandma to get some some gossip, and he follows the gossip. And as a small town goes, there is lots of gossip. And eventually, I don't want to spoil the end, for you, but um, there is progress in the case, um, and it and it and kind of unfolds in a in a weekly format, so that there is always news, there is always an update. And the other thing that makes this podcast really compelling is that these people, I guess it's because they're a small town in in the south, they're very open and um, they speak their mind, and it's 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 fascinating. I can't. I really was confused to know if that it was real. <laughs> And not actors. Yeah, it really, it really is so. It, that it, it advances so quickly, and it, it, there has been a break in the case, so nice. it, it is real. Wow. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me, Clancy, Paula Simons, Sarah O'Donnell, who is out interviewing an intern, and Sean Butts jumped on the mic there to yeah. recommend something. Making, he, make, making his first cameo, I think. <laughs> his we, debut. We're going yeah. to make you do this every week now. <laughs> calorie debut. Thank you for filming some of this and putting it online at EventsInJournal.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of the Press Gallery. Uh, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, 
uh, iTunes, lots of other places. Do subscribe. You just search for Edmonton Journal Press Gallery Podcast and you'll find us there. Join us this time next week for more Alberta politics fun on the Press Gallery.